Uh, the first from Genesis 1. Uh, but before I read, let me pray for us. Oh God, we pray that you will make your a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip and conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen. Okay, the first reading is from Genesis 1, uh, from verse 24, and it's on page 2 of the Church Bibles. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Our second reading is from Colossians chapter 1 starting at verse 15. And that's on page 1182. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross.
Hello, everyone. Thanks, James, for reading for us. Uh, it is wonderful to be with you. If we haven't met, my name's Wal. I'm often on the other uh, side of the parish. I'm the senior minister here, and it's just uh, splendid to be with you. I have four weeks with you now, which I'm really looking forward to. And uh, ordinarily, uh, Sarah, my wife, would be here. Uh, she's keen to come as well. In our family yesterday was a big day, though. We had one of our dogs had eight puppies. And so that's, uh, that's quite big. So she's at home with all of them uh, today. And uh, she just sent me a message saying, look, we have our third son is uh, approaching his P's exam this coming Friday, and yesterday we were under the impression he still managed to, needed to get about 10 hours of driving in. So I took him out last night, we did an hour and a half, and we're just thinking, when are we going to get this done? Anyway, I just got this message saying, I've just added up the logbook. Turns out he's done all his hours already, and, and then just like umpteen smiley faces and clapping hands and all this. So uh, I'm worried about his maths, but his, his driving hours are good. Which is, which is a thing. Yes. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Um, that is the, the beginning of the New Testament letter of Jude. Uh, to put it all in different words, there was a letter that Jude wanted to write and there was a letter that he actually did write. But the letter that he did write was a little bit different from the one that he wanted to write. The letter that he did write was the letter he felt compelled to write because of a particular pastoral crisis that was in the life of his readers. And I confess to having some sympathy with Jude as we begin this sermon series in the opening chapters of the Bible. Uh, and we hear once again what it means to be truly human, what it means that we have been made in the image of God, what it means that we have been made male and female. And in light of all of those things, how we should think and speak and act with regard to various issues around human sexuality. Uh, for several reasons, a little bit like Jude, uh, I would be very eager to teach on many other topics and uh, not the least of which is to avoid risking any future opportunities one of us might have to be the CEO of an AFL club or a leading figure of any organisation. Uh, I think we probably all understand something of the fact that biblical teaching on issues of human sexuality is badly out of favour at the moment in our part of the world. And those who seek to uphold the Bible's teaching on these issues are not simply regarded as eccentric and odd, but rather hateful and harmful. And my aim is not to fan those flames any further. Uh, we had planned this series well before the Essendon saga of a few weeks ago. But the reason for perhaps avoiding a series like this is also the very reason that we can't. We mustn't for our own sake, because if we would live faithfully as disciples of Christ, we have to be clear about the way of life that is in accordance with sound doctrine. We mustn't for the sake of the world around us, because in this age, God's offer of salvation is open to everyone. And the plain teaching of the word of God is always the means by which the spirit of God is at work to convict people with regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. And we mustn't finally, for the sake of our children and for our children's children, that they too might have the opportunity to grow up trusting and serving the Lord with true love and devotion, 
and continue playing their part in contending for the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. But there are two things I ask of you, not just this morning, but really throughout this whole series, two ways that I would love your committed gospel partnership with me. Uh, First, if you hear something that doesn't sound quite right, please assume that the fault lies with your preacher, either in his understanding or in his explanation, but never with the word of God, which is always a good and true and reliable guide in all that it says. Second, uh, will you please commit this whole series to God in prayer? Pray regularly for me and my preparation of these sermons. Pray regularly for all of us in our hearing of God's word that we would joyfully accept and apply all that we hear. We know that in the Psalms, um, God's word is regularly described as sweeter than honey, even than honey from the comb. Um, It's a beautiful description. And I wonder, though, if for perhaps lots of Christians these days, as we consider the Bible's teaching on matters of human sexuality, I wonder if even there remains deep down a kind of grudging acknowledgement that, yeah, okay, the Bible is, is true, but perhaps we are less persuaded than we could be that it is good and that it is for our good and that it is to be delighted in with joy and thanksgiving. And so please pray that God would be at work among us to see things as he sees things. Well, that's enough introduction. Uh, let's think about Genesis 1, 26 to 31 that we read before. This is really the grand conclusion uh, of this majestic chapter and it stands at, at, in relation to the rest of the Bible kind of like a welcome mat at the front door of a house and it really just bids us in to come and see the great things that God has done. Um, imagine being invited to a rich man's house for dinner. And at some point in the proceedings, an announcement is made that dinner is served and you walk in to the dining room and there on the table is just a sumptuous feast, all ready to go and laid out for you. And on a much grander scale, I think that's the kind of story that is set out for us in Genesis 1. Um, In verse 2, at the start, the world is a, a dark, watery chaos. The key words are formless and empty. By the time humanity walks out on the stage in in verse 26, both of those conditions have been completely overturned. And so on days one, two and three, God gives the world form. Uh, The light is separated from the darkness. The sky is separated from the sea. The seas are gathered together and dry land appears. And then on days four, five and six, he then fills in each of those forms. Uh, The sun, moon and stars, the birds and the fish, the land animals. And and the picture that emerges from all this is a world that is the orderly and abundant provision of God made by his own divine initiative and sovereign power. I mean, yes, for the sake of his own joy and his own delight and his own glory, but also for the sake of the humanity that he is about to create. Because just like that dinner at the rich man's house, when humanity does finally appear in this scene, they walk out into this world which is already fully prepared for them. It's just laid out on a plate. 
It's extraordinary. That they might glorify and give thanks to the one who made it all. And so it's no wonder that Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, he says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, they have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So that's the setting And then we come to verses 26 to 31, and there are several things that mark these verses out as the climax of this chapter. Um, The pace of the narrative slows down completely. The familiar rhythm. And God said, let there be. And it was so. And God saw. It was good. Morning, evening, the first day, the second day, the third day, and And on it goes. That familiar rhythm is broken up completely. For the very first time, there's a little moment of divine deliberation, consideration. Uh, God says, verse 26, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And uh, we probably couldn't build the case if this is all we had to go on. But if we know the truth that will ultimately be revealed to us in the gospel message about the Lord Jesus Christ, that the one God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit, then it does seem likely that what is being hinted at here is that there exists within the Godhead an eternal set of loving personal relationships in permanent unity of purpose and will. What does it mean, though, when God determines to make mankind in our image, in our likeness? Uh, Historians tell us that in the ancient world, this was the kind of thing that kings would often do. They set up great big statues around the empire uh, in their image and likeness so that even when they weren't there, it would be a bit of a reminder to everyone that they were the person who was in control, they were the person who is the king in charge, the one with authority. And, you know, currency is another way we do it. We're about to have the faces on all our coins changed because we've moved from a queen to a king and we'll all observe that. And it seems like that's the kind of idea that's connected for us in verse 28 because then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Sorry, this is verse 26, not verse 28 so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move on the ground. It's clearly an important idea because it's repeated again in verse 28. Mankind is to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the animals on the ground. Not to lord it over. Not to exploit. Not to misuse or abuse. But yes, to rule over, to exercise authority, to have dominion. Just as God himself rules and exercises dominion constantly over the whole creation. Um, And we see this, don't we, as we look out at the world. It's not the animals who study us and do documentaries. It's us. It's not the sheep running around Tasmania that have observed the devastating facial cancer that's wiping out the Tassie devil population and trying to work hard to grow a separate population on the mainland so that the species isn't... It's us who does that. It's not monkeys or whales that have kind of landed a rover on Mars. It's us. 
Uh, a few weeks ago, Sarah and I were at the Opera House. We heard the Symphony, uh, Sydney Symphony Orchestra playing some of the most beautiful music ever written. Burley at Symphony Fantastique and Ravel's Piano Concerto. Extraordinary pieces of music. I mean, Wales can sing a beautiful song, but nothing like a full symphony orchestra at flight. Human beings have a remarkable mastery of this world in which we live. We, we just see it in so many ways. For by making us in his own image, in his likeness, this is what God has given us to do. By fulfilling this role in the world that God has made, we are to act as a permanent reminder of the true and living God who is the ruler of all. So we are creation's created reminder of the creation. That's who we are. Uh, it's important to see then that mankind's exalted position in this world is by divine purpose and appointment. It's not based on human aptitude and ability. This is very important. It means that humanity's rule over the world is an expression of God's sovereign purpose in making us in his own image, in his own likeness. Whenever we lose that image of what it means to be human, the result is disastrous. A few weeks ago up in Brisbane, there was a royal commission into violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation of people with disability. Appalling stories of Australians with disabilities who have been going about their daily lives and made to feel unsafe and scared and humiliated. Or, or think about how this vision of what it means to be human will impact the decisions we might make on issues like abortion or euthanasia or voluntary assisted dying. See, if our view of humanity is that what separates us, what distinguishes us from the animals is really nothing more than our intelligence or our capacity to communicate or to cooperate with each other over complex problems or to make moral decisions, well, it is possible that in some of these situations we could end up in a kind of space that some of our supposedly leading ethicists are where an intelligent animal is worthy of greater care and protection than the person whose capacities are in some way diminished. Equally, if our view of humanity is what distinguishes us from the animals is really nothing other than the blind, random chance of evolution. It's just our particular answer to the equation of slime plus time. Then it is very possible that in some of these situations we could end up deciding that it is not morally wrong to end the life of a particular person or even perhaps the lives of a whole people group. After all, is that not just the natural way of things in the world? But you see, a biblical view of what it means to be human will lead us to a totally different set of outcomes whereby all people, both collectively and individually, Regardless of age, sex, intelligence, employability, physical strength, mental capacity, sexual orientation, ability, disability, language, culture, health or any other category we might think of, all people are worthy 
of the exceedingly high honour and care that is by virtue of the fact that in God's sovereign purpose, they have been made in his image. It is such a different view of what it means to be human, and it is a brilliant view. Okay, that's verse 26. What about verse 27? Uh, Even uh, by its poetic arrangement, it kind of stands out, doesn't it? I'm not really big into poetry. I don't know if you are. I'm not. I can kind of follow the rhythm and rhyme of Dr. Zeus. But beyond that, I I find it quite unfamiliar. I feel like it's just random sentences with a capital letter here and there and weirdly spaced on the page is my take on poetry. I'm very ignorant on poetry. I I grant you that. Um, But I was reminded on this verse recently, one of the really wonderful things about Hebrew poetry is it doesn't depend on rhythm and rhyme for a translation. That, that makes translation hard with a lot of poetry, but Hebrew poetry doesn't depend on all that. It really depends on the repetition and development of ideas. Now, that can be translated. And so you, you can see here on the screen, Genesis 1.27, we put it up. The first two lines are virtually a complete repetition, but just the order of ideas is shuffled around a little bit. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created him. That's important in the NIV Bibles that some of us might be using. The word at the end of that second line is them. Um, But in other English translations, it's the word him and it's in the singular. And I've checked with some of the other staff that can read Hebrew. I can't, but it's definitely him and not them. And so you can see how the ideas correspond across those two lines. How does it all change in the third line? Two ways. First of all, Uh, Mankind and him have now become them. And so we see that in humanity there exists the very same oneness and more than oneness that was hinted at in God when he said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Second though, and I think even more significantly, in the image of God, has now become male and female. Notice that these are both biological terms. Uh, In the categories of contemporary discussions about human sexuality, these are not the gender words, uh, whether we're talking about gender roles or gender identity. No, these words are about biological sex. Uh, Just as in the animal kingdom, there is both male and female, so too within humanity, there is both male and female. There's no ambiguity, nothing interchangeable. There's no third sex, which is somehow halfway between them both. And, And here in Genesis 1, this is the only distinction that God, by his sovereign purpose and intention, has built into an essential aspect of what it means to be truly human. Doubtless, uh, there are many different cultures in the world, as as well as many different languages and families and patterns of living, and there are different interests and abilities, and there are different levels of education and personal wealth, and some of us wear glasses and some of us don't, some of us at all, and a thousand differences between us. But all of those things are less important than this. Uh, This distinction alone is written into our human DNA from the very beginning. It is displayed in us even at the chromosomal level. As it says in Psalm 139, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. 
I I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. The one humanity of which all of us are a part is fundamentally divided by biological sex into male and female. What's more, though, that's not just an interesting kind of fact. In the way of Hebrew poetry, if we're reading verse 27 accurately, accurately, it's, it's an essential aspect of what it means that humanity has been made in the image of God. Uh, I think one of our challenges in reading these opening chapters of Genesis is because they describe a world that both is and is not the one we all live in today. Uh, the reason for that is tied up with what happens in Genesis 3. We'll come to that in a couple of weeks' time. But one important part of the story is that our world has in many places completely lost sight of the fact that mankind is made, both male and female, in the image of God. And when this truth is lost, our vision of what it means to be human quickly becomes completely distorted. And overwhelmingly, both historically and I think still to the present, that is to the detriment of females. Uh, In both the ancient world and modern, for example, infanticide is carried out against girls far more than against boys. Uh, A four-decade one-child policy in China has had disastrous consequences for a whole generation which favoured male children over females. In countries like Pakistan and India, the phenomenon of stove burning is experienced almost exclusively by women. Worldwide, domestic violence, sexual violence, sexual exploitation are committed in much greater numbers against females than males in our own federal parliament Our first female Prime Minister made a speech about her experience of misogyny that quickly went viral around the world. In contemporary Western culture, some of the most iconic and kind of inspiring words ever written are found in the opening of the American Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And I think historically, that was a comment about all people, not just all males. But actually... Without the message of Genesis 1, a quick search through the history books tells us that that truth has hardly ever been self-evident anywhere. To get to that conclusion, you actually need a story like the one we find in Genesis 1. And so it's not surprising that it's only in cultures where the story of Genesis 1 has had a profound impact that they think it's self-evident. You need this story whereby the unity and the oneness and the shared equality of all humanity, both male and female, is secured by the fact that God made mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. That is a wonderful story. It is such a good vision of humanity. Okay, one last aspect of what it means that mankind is made in the image of God. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. 
Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. Perhaps the most remarkable thing that happens here is that God now speaks directly to mankind that he has just made in his own image, both male and female. He speaks directly to them with the full expectation that they will be able to understand him. And in time, they will be able to communicate back to him. His words to them are words of blessing. His obvious desire is for their good. His words are not just a command but also a promise. They open up for his precious image bearers an almost infinite set of future possibilities. But at their heart is the idea that they have been made for a relationship with the one who created them. It's a relationship that will depend, as relationship with God always depends, on his gracious initiative towards them. Uh, Even in addition to the whole rest of the chapter, take verse 29, for example, where God provides for them every seed-bearing plant as food. This is such a reversal of kind of pagan religion whereby people have to present food to their gods in order to please them and and earn their favour. But no, this relationship is going to work on the other side where God will provide for them. This relationship is about his grace and his mercy and his overflowing cup of provision. And yet there is something, there is something that God's image bearers are to contribute to this relationship, isn't there? Namely, they are to respond to all that God has done. In other words, to be human in this world that God has made is to have responsibility to have God-given responsibility. Simply by virtue of the fact that he is our creator and the creator of all things, and we are the creatures he has made, male and female, in his own image, with a particular charge for what we are to do and what we are to be in the world. We have a God-given responsibility to live a particular way, to live in response to all the things that God has done. Except, of course, we don't need to have lived very long in the world before we begin to understand just how much you and I and how much the people that you and I know fail to live up to this responsibility that God has given us. We look out at the world and every now and then we can see glimpses still of what was intended there in the beginning. Humanity at its best is splendid. But much more we look out at the world and we see the failures, don't we? And we see the falling short. And once we recognise that and we realise that it really is the very great problem that God has dedicated himself to overcoming on our behalf through the rest of the Bible story, we're actually led out of Genesis 1 and through the rest of the book of Genesis, and on into the New Testament, until we come to the Son of God, the man Jesus Christ, who even more perfectly than humanity as God made us back in Genesis 1, is the perfect image of the invisible God. 
He's the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in bodily form. He's the one who perfectly fits and surpasses all of the good intentions that God had for mankind in the beginning. And we come to see that by his resurrection from the dead, it is he who now rules over all things. Not only as the firstborn of all creation, but also as the head of the church, his body. For through Christ, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things. Even to reconcile us, his deeply rebellious image bearers. By making peace through Christ's blood shed on the cross. Uh, Genesis 1 is a glorious picture. It reveals for us not only the majesty and glory of God, but also what you and I have been made for. We do fall short of it, though. And by ourselves, we can never fully regain it. We can't kind of work ourselves back to Genesis 1, not by ourselves. But Christ can do what we ourselves can't. And therefore, as we come to him in repentance and faith, God is able to make us what he is, that we might be renewed in knowledge and image of our creator. So let's pray together. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing picture in Genesis 1 of the world that you made and of humanity that you created in your own image, both male and female. We thank you for all the extraordinary implications that flow from that. And we pray that you would help us to delight in this picture of what it means to be human, and not only to delight in it, but faithfully to live it out. But Father, we do know that we fall short. We do know that we can't access Genesis 1 anymore. And so we pray that through Christ, you would continue to be at work in us, renewing us, and changing us to become what Christ is, that we might be conformed to his likeness, even as he is your perfect image. Amen.